Welcome to VR in Education. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another exciting episode of VR in Education. In today's episode, we are talking with Dr. Carl Kopp. Dr. Kopp is a professor at Bloomberg University and co-author of the book on learning in the metaverse, which, believe it or not, was written way back in 2010 called Learning in 3D, Adding a New Dimension to Enterprise Learning and Collaboration. So the model described in the book is as relevant today as it was back then. It's a great blueprint for designing learning experiences in the metaverse. He's here today to talk more about this model and how it translates into effective learning design for 3D virtual worlds. Welcome to the show, Carl. Craig, thanks. Thanks for having me. I'm very excited to be here. I always start with kind of an origin story. And so what got you interested in, you know, 3D virtual worlds and, you know, immersive learning and how they connect together in the first place? Yeah, so I've always been interested in kind of the convergence of learning and technology and how they work together. Um, one of my first jobs was at a, a, a company that did instructional design and technology. So it's always been fascinating. Back then we had, you know, the basic green screens. And then I've also been fascinated by video games. So uh, you know, early adopter of the PlayStation and really had a lot of fun doing that. And then I, I kind of in the background heard about this thing called a, a virtual world. And I thought that was kind of interesting. And in graduate school, we talked about these things called micro worlds, which were versions of it. Then I heard about this thing called Second Life. And I'm like, I've got to check out this this thing called Second Life. I've got to see what it is, what what's happening in there. And is it like a video game? Is it like... What's it like? So uh, one day I remember downloading the um, app for my browser. And uh, I think it was the old uh, IE browser, actually. And uh, jumping into Second Life and just being amazed by the places I could go and the things I could see and the things I could do. And I immediately thought, wow, this is going to be um big in the learning and development space and the education space. There's a, there's a lot here that we've talked about doing, but now we can actually do. And so that got me like really, really excited. And then, um, uh, I, uh, um, let's see, you have a quite, you have a question about like, then what happened? Uh, um, I was really yeah. kind of disappointed. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, it was a great quote. And so, you know, I'll actually read it so the audience hears it. So sure. in, in, in one of your literatures, it might have been your book, it said, or you, I quote you, one of my first forays into nascent metaverse was, as you said, beyond disappointing. And I, I believe it had something to do with a language learning app. And so tell us more about that as you unpack this. It was. So, so here I am in this strange new world where you could develop anything, go anywhere, create anything you wanted. And I was like, this is awesome. This is great. So somebody said, hey, 
uh, Carl, do you want to comment? Abbott Bundy is my was my avatar in Second Life. Hey, do you want to come to uh, English as a second language course in the metaverse and see what we can do in the metaverse? And I'm like, oh yeah, this is awesome. So I, I I go to their place, I walk in, and it's a virtual classroom with a virtual PowerPoint, and I just kind of my heart just kind of sank for language learning. Language, all the things we could do here. You could put me in an airport and have me try to find my gate. You could put me in a restaurant and have me try to order dinner. You could put me in a hotel and have me book a room for the evening. You could put me on a foreign street and have me uh, try to find directions. But the default was a PowerPoint classroom. And I thought, what a wasted opportunity. We just took what we did in the classroom. I always, you know, we took the worst parts of learning in the classroom and we automated it. And I thought, ugh, not the right way to go. So that really got me passionate about speaking out on the what I felt was the right way to leverage this new technology. Um, 2D virtual technology and classroom technology could do a lot of stuff better than a 3D virtual PowerPoint room. But a 3D world could do a lot of things better than a regular classroom. So let's do what's best in that environment. And that, that really kind of ignited the spark uh, and why I eventually um, co-authored the book with Tony O'Driscoll because we're like, there's, there's people need to know that there's a different way to do education in the metaverse. Um, and they need to pay attention to these to these other ways of doing it so that we don't just digitize physical world with no advantages. And we're going to get into the model that you proposed, which, uh, as I said in the introduction, is so relevant with this new resurgence of, you know, I'm using air quotes here, uh, metaverse. Mm-hmm. Why, why do you think Second Life died out in the first place? Is it because... You know, there was no traction for learning and people sort of just couldn't figure this out? Well, I think there was a number of different reasons. So um, I think one was, I think some of it was self-inflicted by Linden Labs, Labs themselves. I think some of it was victim to the same thing that we're seeing now, right? All these companies are rushing into the metaverse. They're not really sure why or what they're doing. They just know they need to, they just think they need to be in there. And I think the other thing was because, because we didn't fully leverage the advantages of the metaverse, people said, ah, this is just like, you know, I could use a virtual classroom to show PowerPoints. Why do I need to become a character, decorate my avatar and go into this 3D world and just to watch PowerPoint when I can do it much faster? and easier with another tool. And I, and I think one of the mistakes that was made was, was Tony, my co-author calls it the routinization mistake. That happens with a lot of technologies that we try to take what we know and are comfortable with in one technology and put it into another. So for example, great examples when the motion picture, motion camera was first created, uh, They literally set it up in front of a theatrical play and just recorded the play. 
and then they distribute it. So that doesn't make it any better than it was before. But now we have film conventions. So, for example, if the film goes blurry, you know there's going to be a time change. If the film whips around, you know you've moved from one place to another very rapidly. If it slows down, you know a person's running faster, which I, I don't quite figure out how that works, but that's kind of how that works. So um, those conventions build up over the years, and now film is very good for certain things, very powerful, and theater is very good for certain things, but they're not always overlapping. And the things that you can do in a live theater presentation to engage the audience are much different than you would do in a movie to engage the audience. So I, I think I think we just didn't have that te technology to do that. And then this other really interesting thing I think happened is right around, <laughs> so I always joke, uh, when Learning in 3D came, book came out, that was pretty much the, the end of Second Life, um, although it's still around. But about that same time, mobile learning was first coming on the scene. And I think mobile learning caught everyone's attention and took it away from the metaverse because of some of those problems that we talked about already. And then a lot of focus went on that mobile learning and uh, learning at your fingertips. And so I think that took a lot of the energy and a lot of the uh, resources away from the metaverse. And now with Zuckerberg's announcement, uh, that focus is now back on the metaverse, which I think is actually very healthy. And let's so let's talk about that because again, I did. I've been following 3D virtual worlds and then VR for a while now, and I, I did see what you talked about earlier, and that was when companies started, and these are educational companies, so companies trying to design spaces for learning. They did exactly what you talked about, which was they first decided to set up, you know, a virtual world of a physical classroom or an amphitheater or you know, a copy of a digital twin of their school. And I'm seeing that evolve now, but that was their first foray. And, you know, what, what can you do in that space? Well, like you said, you can kind of lecture, you can didactically sort of feed students information. But, you know, you talk about with your model that it leverages or does a better job of certain things that maybe e-learning, which is in my opinion, 2D or the physical classroom can't do. So what, what are the superpowers, I guess, if I'm an educator of using a 3D immersive world? Right. Great question. So one of the things that you could do is you can literally go anywhere. So for example, you could go in, if you're an educator, you could go into the heart of a volcano. You could go into the nucleus of a molecule you could become an ant in an ant colony. You could become a bee in a beehive. So you can take on personas in the physical world and experiences that you would have no other way. In fact, you can also then experience, for example, in, in a medical school, there used to be a place in um, Second Life where you could experience what it was like to have schizophrenia. And so you would go into this world and, and you would hear these voices and things would be not quite in focus. And then you'd get these weird, mysterious um, uh, directions. So you could immerse yourself in what it was like to understand and empathize 
with people in that in that position. Another rate, great example is, you know, we talk about diversity and inclusion. Uh, uh, a woman tells a story about how she dressed up like the Kool-Aid character, the Kool-Aid man. So for those of you who don't remember, for the young kids listening, uh, there was a giant picture of this, this soft drink called Kool-Aid. And the Kool-Aid man would burst into a wall and say, hey, Kool-Aid. And he was this big, giant pitcher. Um, and so she would go, she would have her students dress like the Kool-Aid man and go to a virtual nightclub. And first, everybody kind of laughed. It's fun having the Kool-Aid man there. But then they started to discriminate against the Kool-Aid man. He was too big to dance on the dance floor. He didn't look as, you know, everybody else was totally buff and he didn't look good. And so they were ostracizing the Kool-Aid man more and more as a way for the students to feel and empathize with what it's like to be um, different than everybody else in the environment and different in maybe a way that other people don't like. So that's a really interesting way to, to experience uh, diversity and inclusion issues without getting into, you know, uh, with allowing a distance between the real issues and kind of what your experience as the Kool-Aid man. So those are just some examples. And then on, on the other side, um, there's really good examples of, let's say you're training someone, uh, a student, uh, and you're telling them about working in a factory, like the trade crafts, because we need more and more people who can do trades because we don't have enough people doing the trades. And the trades are, are, are very um, complicated and sophisticated in a lot of different ways. And one way is, let's say that you're working on as on a crew of building a home and a home, uh, a residential construction is a very uh, complicated process and uh, very dangerous, too, if you're not careful. Well, you could experience being in that environment and maybe not wearing a helmet, uh, I'm sorry, a hard hat and seeing the consequences or seeing the consequences of not using the safety material or seeing the consequences of um, turning on the electricity before it's completely wired or the consequences of running uh, a, an electrical line without all the safety precautions. I mean, there, there's a lot of things that we can do in, by putting the learner in the place where they can witness or apply the learning. Classroom necessitates a distance between me as a learner and the actual situation where I'm going to be applying that knowledge. But in an immersive multiverse, the learning and the environment become the same. And that's a powerful tool. Mm. A lot of context here. Besides that, I know you wrote in your book, as well as some of the stuff that you have on your LinkedIn learning, where you talk about this subject is the concept, and you alluded to this kind of with the trades, and that's the idea of procedural learning. And so in these 3D immersive worlds, we have the ability to put like tools and assets, and then the person can, you know, maybe grab them or point at them. These particular experiences start to get fairly complex to build. Uh, some immersive worlds are low code, which means you can drop something in there. A person can see the 3D model, but they really can't do much with it. Or you could hire a company and pay, I don't know, tens of thousands of dollars to have them add game engine type physics where 
the person literally can angle the tool the right way and so on. Is it okay to have sort of the low code experience when you're going through procedural learning or do you think it's a necessity for it to be so realistic that they're almost grabbing the object. What's your thoughts on that when it comes to procedural learning in these 3D worlds? Yeah, that's a good question. So I, I don't think we need 100% fidelity. I think one of the mistakes, you know, uh, one of the, um, in the video game world, one of the um, holy grails of accomplishment was water, right? The more realistic you can make water, the better your game. Well, <laughs> that's not true at all. Um, the water has nothing to do with most of the games, and um, that's nice to put resources there, but that doesn't make a game fun or enjoyable, and people will drop out of the game even if the water is is 100% realistic. So we don't have to strive for 100% realism, and we need to think, I think, of learning in, in the metaverse as part of a continuum of learning. So, for example, let's say that we're in a chemistry class and we want the students to mix certain chemicals to get a certain reaction. And, you know, we're using safe chemicals and on goggles and everything, but you might be able to have them go into the virtual world and mix the chemicals and do the process and see where it's actually used in a factory and get a sense of the procedure. And then when they're done in the lab, with the beakers, with the actual chemicals, so they can feel the warmth or, you know, um, listen to the, uh, the bubbling of the, the chemicals, you, you can then add that element to it. So I think it's really important for us not to think that, oh, we have to move all of our education into the metaverse or, or virtual experience, but we can teach the procedures and a lot of the information without having to have 100% fidelity of all the tools. Now, eventually, will that happen? Yes, because you know, if we get water right, then we certainly can get a hammer right. We certainly can get a piece of uh, a sawmill right. We can get um, all of those things right, extruders. But for now, uh, if you don't have access to them, you can go ahead and have proxies for them. The other thing that that's available now that wasn't available, you know, a few years ago is there are websites like TurboSquid that allow you to buy for relatively inexpensively fully formed 3D objects so that you can pull, now, now you might not be able to interact with them, but you could have them to create the environment or the atmosphere. So we still have, we're still, you know, it's, it's kind of funny. The book was written, written a while ago and, and 3D kind of went away. And, and I still feel like we're in, a, in a, a very nascent point in the development of kind of the, the multiverse. In some ways, I think we even stepped backwards um, from what we had before to kind of what we're doing now. And so uh, it will only be a matter of time before the resources and the tools are available for teachers to be able to do what they need to do for their own specific procedural instruction. Mm. You mentioned your book. So I want to talk about that just briefly here. You know, this mm -hmm. was written in 2010, which is quite a while ago when it comes to technology and learning. And yet, as we said, there's the principles there are pretty sound, but is there anything in that book that you sort of think about that you wrote that you might say, Oh, 
think I changed my mind about that now that we're in 2022 when it comes to kind of the resurgence of these 3D immersive worlds? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. So to be honest, I haven't gone back <laughs> in a while to to reread the book. Um, and the, the, the so um, I, I think one of the things that we missed in the book, um, and and by we I mean me probably mostly, is the the accept how I didn't anticipate the resistance of non-gaming people to enter into that world. Um, I just expected, you know, there might be a little bit of resistance, but we just have a tutorial. We show people how to do it and, you know, and soon they'll be loving it. Um, and that wasn't true at all. Um, people that, that didn't like that environment were not only reluctant to go in, but they were fighting tooth and nail, like, simple things like moving their avatar from point A to point B, you know, Hey, my avatar is spinning around in a circle. Well, take your hand off of the arrow key and just tap it. Right. But that, that wouldn't happen. Or I, I don't know how to do this or it's, it's too complicated. And you know, um, it wasn't, but so I really underestimated that kind of, of resistance because I was hanging around with people that, were so enthusiastic and so excited about it. Um, but we, you know, we, we were the early adopters. We were the minority. We were the um, outliers. So I think one of the things that you, there's lots of things to say about Zuckerberg's move to the metaverse and um, not all of it is positive, but one thing that it did do was shine a bright light on making it more mainstream than you know back in, in 2010 there were, there were small pockets of us all over but there wasn't the attention from the media that there is now carl i want to unpack the gaming question a little bit more that is to say you know 3d immersive worlds are often connotated with the gaming industry so virtual worlds like Fortnite and Minecraft come to mind. So these associations have, I think, plagued learning and the use of these immersive worlds for learning. You know, tell us more about that and why, why is this such a concern as we start to get further into thinking about these metaverses for learning? Yeah, that's a really good question. So one of the things that I think happens is people conflate the content of games with the process or elements of games, right? So people say, oh, a game like Grand Theft Auto, that's a horrible game in terms of morality and uh, violence or uh, all these games about people shooting up people. And so so the, the game games are horrible. But what that does is it, focuses on the content of those games. So I often say, you know, some of the worst things written in human history are in books. We don't get rid of all books. What we do is we say the content of that book is acceptable or not acceptable. So we can't, we have to look past the content of the games. And so what do games do? Well, games allow us to be immersed in the sights and sounds and experiences of an environment. 
where in the classroom, there's this separation between you and the content. Either the teacher is providing the content, it's on a chalkboard, even on online learning, there's uh, basically this 2D, I'm very aware that there's a screen in front of me. But if I'm in a virtual world, I can look to my left, I can look to my right, I can walk up to somebody, I can walk over there, I can get a sense of distance, I can get a sense of space, I can see if it's night or day. So we're not just in the classroom at the same time, we're in the same space, we're in the same environment. So I think it's it's um, unfortunate to say that games, because they typically contain content that's not appropriate for the classroom should be banned. What we should do is think about, can we have games that are appropriate for the classroom and leverage that? I also often say, uh, people talk about, um, you know, oh, well, learning is serious, so we can't use a game. But uh, if you look at the history of uh, uh, people on earth, we find out that a lot of people prepare for the worst thing we can do to each other, which is warfare, through games, like war games. In fact, Admiral Nimitz said every every uh, battle in World War II was pretty much predicted by war gaming, and it had been battled and, and fought out in war games, everything he said but kamikazes. So that's a really serious endeavor. And when we look at the seriousness of warfare, we use games to help predict what would happen, to help decide if we're ready, to help us think through what the other side would do, to help us go through all of these experiences. So why not take the, again, not the content, we don't want to teach people warfare, but take the ideas about thinking through what if scenarios, thinking through different environments, thinking as um, uh, uh, you know, making a student, you know, a gazelle on, uh, as I said, uh, uh, in the Serengeti and having others be lions and chasing them, right? So it provides us with a chance to take a perspective that we might not be able to before in a very serious way. So games can be very serious. Now, one of the, the, the pushbacks is, you know, parents haven't learned that way. And so we know in school initiatives, if parents aren't comfortable with that technique, they tend to push back. So there's a lot of pushback that we would have to do to get these environments in there. But um, Assassin's Creed, a game about where you play an assassin, they actually created years ago a non-assassin version of that game mm -hmm. where you could learn about the culture of the environment. You could see what kind of food they ate. You could see what kind of jobs they had. You could hear the sights and sounds. You could look up in the sky at night and see stars instead of light pollution. So it provides an immersion and an understanding of an environment and a people and a place uh, that you that's hard to get any other way without actually going there. But to pay for uh, you know a classroom of fifth graders to fly to ancient Egypt, um, ancient Egypt doesn't even exist anymore, but just to go to Egypt is, is probably not in the budget. So Games can provide you with that. So, so don't think about games as, you know, like, oh, they're playing Candy Crush in school. That's not it. They're having an immersive experience to learn about the subject, the culture, the, the, the animals, the biosphere, all kinds of things. So that's why I think um, 
we need to expand our thinking about defining games and what games mean for learning. And there's, and then I can just throw in, there's tons of research that show that games are an act of learning are fantastic for learning so much better than lectures. So uh, games are kind of, kind of really effective uh, learning and development tools. Mm, well said, Carl. I, I noticed from your work on LinkedIn that you still produce a lot of content using video. Why not, why not the metaverse? Why not start to sort of roll out that platform to do some of your teaching and learning? I do. That's a great question. And I think it, it gets back to, to what Tony and I discovered in, in 2010. Um, when we were in there talking to people about the metaverse and every, you know, everybody was really excited about it. We were really thrilled about it. But we were we were preaching to the choir. We were um, converting the already converted, so that didn't didn't really help. It didn't get widespread adoption. So this time around, uh, with the course, I, uh, video course, I want people to understand the metaverse before I drag them into the metaverse. And I, and I have this vision of me as a digital character grabbing another digital character and like dragging them into the metaverse. Um, I don't think that's the way that uh, works. Well, uh, from my experience, it doesn't work. But what does work, I think, is letting people know the possibilities of the metaverse, what the metaverse can do, helping demystify the metaverse, and then inviting them in. So I think that's um, a better approach. We'll find out. But I think it's a better approach than just kind of, hey, I'm in the metaverse. Come on, jump in with me. So uh, I want the people to know what the metaverse could do before they ever go in there. And then the other thing I want is... Um, a lot of times, you know, with the new technology, uh, educators aren't developing the technology. It's techie people and they have their own vision, right? They, you know, I said, as I said before, they want to make water look super realistic. Well, that might, might be nice, but what I really want as an educator is the student to be able to pick up a hammer and see the various aspects of a hammer and understand how it works and be able to use it to actually pound in a virtual nail. That, that would be mine. I don't care about the water. Um, so, the idea would be to get educators and those who are going to go into the uh, multiverse, metaverse, to push the developers for the possibility what could be. So we have all these multi, uh, multi-universities, which and many of them, as you said, are, are just copycats of the physical, which is great. But let's go beyond that. Let's open the eyes of educators to what is beyond the typical classroom experience. And we can do that by educating them outside of the metaverse in the the video uh, realm, because a lot of them are there, and then pushing and then having them push forward. Then when they go into the metaverse, they'll know what to expect. They'll be comfortable. It won't be as mysterious and it'll be easier to onboard them then if they, you know, what is this metaverse thing? They want me to log in and check it out. I, I don't understand that. So uh, now it's like, hey, come on in. Here's a little primer of what the metaverse is. Now you can walk in and check it out. And I think that will be helpful. I, it, it's the analogy I would use is, um, you know, when I go to uh, uh, somewhere as a tourist, um, like Vietnam or wherever, uh, I like to read about the history of the place and I like to read about what kinds of things I'll see and I like to understand it before I get there. That makes the experience so much richer 
than if I just show up and I'm like, okay, well, what is that building? Like who's Ho Chi Minh? I don't understand this. So the idea of doing your, your, your homework before jumping into the metaverse is the same way. Before you go tour the metaverse, take this, uh, you know, read the tour guide, the Rick Steves version of what the metaverse is, and then jump into the metaverse. So that's the reason that I've been using video and especially the reason behind my LinkedIn learning course, uh, learning in the metaverse, because I wanted people uh, who might not be in the metaverse, not top of their mind, but wondering like what it is, is it any good? I don't understand it. Uh, I don't know if it's for me. And that hopefully answers those questions. Mm. I love that example of, you know, reading first, because I think some people think that we're proclaiming that these 3D immersive worlds are going to replace everything else that we know is good and true about the learning industry. And you've already sort of uh, unpacked that to say that, no, this is, you know, another tool, another way, in, and it includes all the other great ways that we already know might work to teach your curriculum or your content. Yeah, well, well said. We're not, I, I mean, there are people, but I'm certainly not advocating throwing out what we know works for, for the new technology. Let's just use the new technology for what it's really good at doing instead of trying to replace it, that that never works. Such good advice and a great way to end. So thanks again, Carl, for coming on the show. If people are interested in learning more about your thoughts on this topic or even gamification, how can they get a hold of you to learn more from you? Yeah, Craig, good question. So, so probably the easiest way and where I post the most is on LinkedIn. So just uh, K-A-R-L-K-A-P-P, follow me on LinkedIn. Uh, I have a newsletter there that I publish um, So um, on a monthly basis. So that's a good place. Uh, that's where I, I posted a version of the, the model uh, that Tony and I did in uh, learning in 3D. I have a LinkedIn, I have a uh, YouTube channel, which I've got lots of videos there. So uh, and one, one of my favorites right now is an unauthorized, unofficial history of learning games. It's been a really fun series for me. So uh, we look at um, lots of different, like how does the learning games start? And then when, what can we learn from them? And we look at games like um, Oregon Trail, and we've looked at games, uh, the first card game ever created, um, the MIT beer distribution game. And also uh, you can follow me on Twitter, KKAPP uh, on Twitter. And, um, LinkedIn Learning. So I've got a number of courses on LinkedIn Learning. Most universities have free access to those courses. I have gamification courses there. I have the Metaverse course there. Um, and so uh, you can leave a message on a course and get in touch with me as well. And maybe in the future, uh, a, metavor a Metaverse course. Yes, yes. Yeah, I, I teach one at the university. I, I taught one uh, this summer. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm hoping to get... Um, more courses actually in the metaverse as more yeah. people get comfortable with jumping in. Great. Again, Carl, thank you so much for being on the show. Your thoughts and wisdom are much appreciated. Thank you, Craig. Great being here.